spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Just your average day in hell, episode 181 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and the reason I say that is. Time for us to talk Lucifer this week on our fall TV coverage. That's right, the premiere coming up October the 2nd. Time to get you ready. We're going to have the triumphant return of Joe Henderson to the show. Amy Garcia is going to be here. Tricia Helfer is going to be here. Rachel Harris is going to be here. And plenty more to talk about the third season of Lucifer because we saw him get dumped in the desert at the end of season two. Got to pick up where that left off, right, and find out what's going to be going on for this upcoming season. You heard me talk about Gotham last week. I'll have my spoiler-filled review of the Gotham Season 4 premiere coming up. Also, a boatload of nerd news and three new comics to talk about. So let's get to that right now, next, on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Take out that long box, tablet, or laptop. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading and one that I've been looking forward to ever since it's been announced. The collaboration between DC Comics and Dark Horse Comics for Wonder Woman Conan number 1, written by Gail Simone. Aaron Lepresti does the pencils, Matt Ryan on the inks, Wendy Broom on the colors, and Saida Timofante on the letters. This is exactly what you expect it to be, but it's very Conan-heavy. I will say, in this first issue. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Don't worry about that. But you see Conan kind of going on a little bit of a journey and certain things that he sees along the way and a couple of things happen, and he ends up in a place that looks very familiar to him. I will say that much. And you do get those the epic gladiator battle points in this book. I can tell you that much without giving anything away. It's exactly the action that you would expect from a Conan book. But when we actually meet... Wonder Woman, and I mean, the book is Conan and Wonder Woman, so it's not like you don't know we're going to meet Wonder Woman at this point. I will say that, especially from what we've been exposed to recently, this is a very different Wonder Woman than we're used to, not just costume-wise, but personality-wise. And I'll be honest, it took me a minute to kind of get used to it. It's not that there was anything wrong with it. It just took me a minute to get used to it, and we kind of see something from Wonder Woman's past, and I mean way, way back, and I'm not talking about character past, I'm talking about something in the comics that used to be a big deal for her but isn't anymore, and that is the best way I can say without spoiling anything, but I kind of picked up on it, and I won't be surprised if you do as well, so comment on this and see if you know exactly what I'm talking about once you get to the point in that book. And maybe you might be taken aback by that. Maybe you wouldn't be. But I will say that one thing I thought that was very, very interesting was the interactions between Conan and Wonder Woman and possibly a connection between the two of them. It's not a sure thing. I will say that much. And this is not necessarily in continuity either. I want to let you know that right now. It's not necessarily anything that's going to be in continuity at all. I mean, this certainly feels like a standalone story, and I certainly expect it to be. 
where your main antagonist in the story, who I won't give away, is somebody that you will absolutely hate immediately. I know that I did. And that's one of the points of stories like this. Sure, you've got two classic characters that you've always probably wanted to see together in a book, but you still need that antagonist, right? And whether it's somebody that's familiar to you or not, you still need somebody going, God, that 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 guy needs to die kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's it, There's somebody that somebody you just despise to take that book up another notch. And Gail Simone delivers on that. I will say this too, the art is absolutely 100% spot on amazing. It really brings this book to life, not just in the battle scenes, but in the scenes just where we see Wonder Woman. And it's definitely a different look for her. But there's a certain point in the book, and I will say it happens after a climactic point. Again, I really am trying not to give anything away here because I want you to see this with fresh eyes like I did. And you see her in a certain point in the book, and it really brings out the emotion in the art. And that's one thing that art has to do is bring out emotion. And Lepresti and Ryan do that so, so well here. And I'll even bring in uh, Wendy Broom and Saida Timofante here as well because everything pops in this book from the art team and the creative team. And then Gail Simone just knows how to write this kind of book. It just feels like I am in a Conan story. And it, it makes me wonder why we haven't seen Gail Simone writing Conan more. Never, never mind Wonder Woman. She writes Conan very, very well. But, of course, she's very strong with Wonder Woman. Doesn't get a chance to work with her a whole lot in this book, so I'll be very interested, especially the way this book ends, which is a really nice cliffhanger. You do see it coming at one point, but it's a really nice cliffhanger, and it's something that you're going to want whether you want it or not. It looks like we're going to get that happening a little bit. And you'll understand what I mean when you see it. It's like, ah, oh, I want to see this. But I don't want to see it based on the story at the same time. So it's that kind of back and forth. This is an absolute pull for me. This was everything I was hoping for. And DC and Dark Horse delivered on it. Can't wait for the next issue. Something else that fans might have been looking forward to is the return of Samurai Jack to comics. And IDW is going to make that happen. Samurai Jack Quantum Jack number one comes out this week from Fabian Wrangle Jr. who does the writing. Warwick Johnson Cadwell does the art and the colors on this. And Corey Breen does the letters. Now, right off the bat, I need to tell you that this is a very different Samurai Jack. There is a character in this book named Samurai Jack. And again, I'm going to try and do my best not to spoil anything, but for this one especially, it's going to be really, really hard. There is a character named Samurai Jack, and there is a group of, uh, like a biker gang, that hijacks a royal convoy or envoy or whatever you want to call it at the time. And there is an item that is very, very important in this story, and Samurai Jack is kind of involved with this biker gang. Now, once he sees what he has, that's when the story changes and they're supposed to deliver this artifact to someone. And that's when things start to get a little bit difficult and that's where the story takes a little bit of a turn. I will say this though, if you're a classic Samurai Jack fan, you do get some decent action in here, so don't worry about that. You'll definitely have that. But you're not necessarily going to get what you expect from the classic character. There is a couple of very interesting points here though. It's almost like... It's almost like an Easter egg, but it's not because you can tell it's actually going to matter once the story goes forward for anybody who is a classic Samurai Jack fan. So it's one of those things where if you don't like what you're seeing, 
it gives you enough to not want to give up on it to at least go to the next issue and see if you're going to get what you're expecting, if that helps you. To be honest, I, I mean, I know this is from the Helena Crash team, uh, another IDW book. I'm not really a fan of the art style. That doesn't mean it's not good. It's just not my thing. It's very abstract, and that tends to not be my thing. So don't let that scare. Don't let me not liking it scare you away from this book. If you're very, if you're a big fan of the abstract art style, you will definitely love this book because that was very much the same style as Hell in a Crash, and the action elements are well done. I will say that, despite what I feel about the art, the action elements were definitely well done. And I got to give a shout out to Corey Breen here. The letters were very, very important in this book and bringing forward exactly what was going on. So I will give the letterer a lot of credit on this book. The unsung heroes of any comic, right, is the letterer. So that really jumped out to me in this book. The story, though, kind of ends a little bit abruptly, and I was surprised about that. I thought that even though I knew that the final pages were coming... I was kind of surprised that it ended the way it did. It doesn't mess. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just sort of surprised that it ended as abruptly as it did. So I'm going to give this, ah, it's really tough. I'm going to give this a pickup for now because I'm kind of interested to see what happens in, in the next issue. But normally I have a three issue rule for this one. It's going to be a two issue rule. I'll find out exactly how I feel about a couple of elements in the story that I think might happen. And if those come to pass, I think I'll stick with Samurai Jack, Quantum Jack. If not, I might go ahead and throw this in the drop pile. So that's where I'm at with that. One series that I've loved from the get-go is Secret Weapons from Valiant. And unfortunately, it's ending this week. Secret Weapons number four is coming out. Eric Heiser does the writing there. Raul Allen and Patricia Martin do the art. And Patricia Martin actually does the letters for this as well. And can we just get this out of the way? How amazing this series has not just been written, but the art has been just so, so amazing in this. And of course we see our favorite characters getting involved. You know that Amanda was captured by the scavenger last issue. And we know that Rexo is on the rampage again, trying to find the misfits. And one character that really shines for me in this book is Owen. Owen really comes out of his shell and kind of, I mean, without spoiling anything, maybe this is a minor spoiler, so a little bit of an alert here. Kind of gets it together in this issue. It's really nice to see him step up and kind of actually get his act together in this issue, and we kind of see what he can do. But just, you fall in love with these characters throughout the first three issues have been read, if you've been reading these, this series. This issue will not disappoint. It will make you care about these characters even more, if that's possible. And Amanda... Livewire, man, she always has that badass moment in every issue. And I know that Eric Heiser has been a fan of the character and has definitely shined a huge, huge spotlight on her. He does not disappoint in this issue as well. And one of the reasons why she needed to lead this team and she needed to lead this book. If you didn't realize that already, this fourth issue will tell you that, especially the panels with her and the scavenger being involved, really, really powerful stuff by everybody involved in this book. And you do get a nice little conclusion to this first arc, so don't feel like you're going to be left hanging or anything like that. But it's the end of this book where there's a real emotional moment with the team, and actually each individual member of the team kind of gets their due. And you see exactly where this is going to be going, so you know that Secret Weapons isn't going away. Not only that, you get to see where this story is headed and what they're going to do and things they might do. It's almost like 
It's almost like it's its own end credit scene. The last couple of pages of this book, even though it's part of the actual comic, it feels like that end credit scene where you're going, okay, here's where we're going to, now that we've done this, here's where we're going to go, here's what we're going to do, and here's what each of you is going to be doing. I thought that that was brilliant because you're sad that this series is ending because it's been so good, but now we actually get to see what everybody's role is. And it's the questions that you kind of asked, I think, and I know that I did throughout these first few issues about each character that gets addressed. At least for me, it did. I don't know if you asked the same questions that I did, and I'm not going to spoil this for you. I don't know if you asked the same questions that I did about some of these characters, but if you did, and you'll know when you get there at the end, if you did, then you will know that they are going to address that probably in the next arc, maybe a little bit later, maybe for some characters it'll take longer than others, but it will be addressed. And I love that. There was nothing to me that was missing in this series. And while I say I wanted more, I think four issues was probably enough. I think if you pushed it to six, it might have been a little bit of filler and stuff that wasn't necessary. So the fact that they ended it at four, I actually think was really, really perfect. Scavenger was a great villain. Rexo was a great villain. There was a couple of really big action elements in this book. And Valiant's done really well with these big action elements, the the wow factor. And they bring that in this book for sure, especially when it involved Rexo, when Rexo was battling the team in this, I guess you could call it a final battle because it isn't the final issue. That doesn't really spoil anything either. So there's a big action element there that was very, very cool and just jumped right out at me. This kind of series and this kind of book is everything you want in a limited series and Valiant brings that to you from start to finish. So if you haven't read Secret Weapons, hard to call it a pull because there's no next issue until the next volume. So I would say pick up the trade if you haven't read any of it. If you're missing a few issues, grab them and put this in your pull box for volume two because that is going to be coming out at some point. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Time to give my spoiler-filled review of the Gotham Season 4 premiere. That's right here next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Lydian Burke from Lucifer on Box, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It is time for a dark night to rise, and it is our spoiler-filled review of the Gotham Season 4 premiere. And I'm just going to say this right away before I even get into the show. The best premiere that this show has had in its four seasons. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that we've been very high on Gotham on the show. We've had luck to have a lot of the cast members on the show. And even last week, you heard us talking to the cast of Gotham at San Diego Comic-Con. But this premiere, right from the get-go, absolutely had me. The premise of, and this is again, spoiler filled, by the way, the premise of Penguin giving out licenses to commit crime Getting the commissioner and the mayor to go along with it is absolutely brilliant. I love the concept. Robin Lord Taylor, once again, just doing such a great job as Penguin and Oswald. And he's kind of embraced the Penguin role at this point. He actually made a couple of jokes about it himself during the show. So it seems like he's finally starting to embrace that Penguin role. But at the same time, we have the power struggle because now... Jim Gordon's going to be more of an adversary for Penguin than he has in a long, long time. And then you have this other gang who doesn't have the license to practice crime. So they're going to go after Penguin. You've got Nygma who's still on ice. And then here's the other thing that kind of pops into play as well. You've got Ivy. Now, she didn't exactly go along 
with everything that Penguin was doing. And let's face it, Penguin treats her like garbage, and that's no secret going back to last season anyway. So you kind of see Ivy make that move towards the end of the show where she cuts the lights and kind of makes everything go haywire. I love that. So Penguin's going to have all of this adversity coming at him from all angles. And in private moments, you could see that he's not totally confident anyway in being able to be this leader and be this figurehead. When he's in his private moments, he's kind of a little bit more vulnerable, but his public persona he shows is very, very strong. And then you've got Jim Gordon, who is the... He's, he hasn't changed a bit, has he? He's going to defy the odds. But can I just say, I think I understand why... Gordon becomes the commissioner at some point because he basically can't get along with any other commissioner, right? I mean, he gets the crap beat out of him by the commissioner and a few cops in this episode. He can't get along with any commissioners. So, you know what? Might as well just become the commissioner at some point down the line, and then you won't have to worry about it anymore. So, gotcha, Jim. Don't worry about it. The biggest thing for me in this whole premiere is David Mazou's Bruce Wayne, I guess we call him Batman now. Maybe not necessarily. Maybe we can't give him that title yet. Maybe that's something he still has to earn a little bit later on down the line. But I got to say, for me, I'm not going to speak for any other Batman fans but myself. David Mazouz made me proud in this episode. Not just because of him becoming the fighter that is Batman, but the detective work. We see it. We are actually seeing... The detective work unfold in front of us in this episode when he's trying to track down who is the keeper of the list of who gets the licenses for the crimes and stuff like that. And then the thing that gave me the laugh was when he's talking to Gordon in the police station and he sort of disappears when Gordon turns around. If that wasn't one of the best Easter eggs on nerd TV, I don't know what was because I was cracking up laughing. And at the same time, it just worked so well in that spot. And little does Jim know things to come, right? But man, it was just so amazing. And the way Alfred and Bruce interacted with each other in this episode, what Sean Pertwee was telling us when he was talking to us at San Diego Comic-Con, when he told me, look, you want to try to control them, but you also want them to try and spread their rings. And we saw that absolutely play out in this episode. And there was just so much to love throughout the story and you get to see how everything unfolds and then you see Jonathan Crane. That's right, being pulled out of the asylum and you know what's coming. You know the scarecrow's coming and you know what's going to be coming in this episode. And these gang of morons is the best way I can think to describe them because of how they were acting. This gang of morons, you know, they scare him. They try to control him and everything like that. And then it seems like at one point later on the episode, he goes, you know what? Screw it. They leave me alone in here. I'm going to conquer this and just turn it on its ear. And when you get to see that look at Scarecrow, I know that we've seen little bits and pieces of it through trailers and stuff like that. When you get to see it for the first time, it's amazing. It's terrifying. I love it. When they showed the effects of the fear gas on other people throughout the episode, Loved the effect. It looks like Gotham's going to crank the terrifying elements up to 11 this season. Fantastic job by everybody involved there. And I am ready for Scarecrow this season. Even the little bit we saw, I am absolutely 100% ready for Scarecrow to take control. And how does this affect Penguin? And what does Scarecrow decide to do? Does he decide to go against Penguin or for Penguin? We'll find that out, I'm sure, as the episodes come along. Does he go along with what this gang was saying? Is that Penguin has too much control? Or is he going to buckle and try and join forces? That's going to be interesting. And to see everything coming at all angles 
at Penguin. I think it's going to be really interesting. And Selena and Tabitha joining forces. There, There's a little bit of a disagreement as to whether or not they should join Penguin or maybe they shouldn't. But Cameron Beacondova, wow, that scene in the alleyway. If that's the start of her training, think about how much of a badass she's going to be. Just at the end of this season, never mind later on. She's off to a fantastic start. So the younger cast members really, really stepping up, especially in this season four premiere. I cannot wait to find out what's going to be coming throughout the rest of the episodes because I think what this did, what this premiere did better than a lot of the other Gotham premieres that preceded it, and there have been some good ones. I feel like this one completely 100% sets the stage for at least the first half of this season. And it gives you so many different angles to choose from, but none feels like it didn't have enough time to be fleshed out and it doesn't feel like there's too much going on at the same time. So a brilliant job of crafting this premiere to tell your audience exactly what you want to do going forward by everybody involved in Gotham. I cannot wait to watch this show on its new time slot on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern. It seems like a good spot for it. It gets it away from Monday. There's not a whole lot of conflicts there. And it just seems like one of those shows is going to be one of the first things that I watch live every week, no doubt about it. That'll do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Gotham Season 4 premiere. Up next, plenty of nerd news and plenty of trailers to talk about on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey everyone, this is D.B. Woodside from Lucifer on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to break out our climbing axe and take a leap of faith because it's time for nerd news. And it seemed like nerd news this week was trailers, trailers, trailers. Let's start with the Tomb Raider reboot trailer that came out this week, of course, with Alicia Vikander and the cast there. And we do see, I'm not going to go ahead and go over every little element of this trailer that I'm sure that you've already seen. If you haven't, it's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash down and nerdy. But we do see that she sees the video from her dad. He says he's found this tomb, the mother of death, and you have to stop the Trinity at all costs. And I mean, what else do you really expect from a Tomb Raider movie? Now, before I get into what I think of this trailer and what I think of this movie in general, I just want to address something really quick. And I've seen this in a lot of places. I want to address the argument of, well, you know, why would I go see this movie when I could just play the game? Or I already know what the game's going to be. This is clearly an origin story and so on and so forth. Here's the deal, okay? And as a nerd culture, I think we need to start understanding this a little bit better. And I've said this before. And I'm going to go ahead and say it again because I've seen the same argument a lot. These movies aren't just for us. Okay, and we need to start realizing that these movies are not just for us. It's for people that haven't played the games or are are unable to play the games for whatever reason. And it's a way to really expand the genre, if we're being honest about it. I mean, don't we want to see the genre be expanded? And if that just happens to happen because somebody who wasn't familiar, familiar with the games or wasn't exactly a fan sees this movie and decides to turn around and become a fan of those things... I don't see that that's necessarily a bad thing. Plus, I mean, it's certainly not bad to have a character like Laura Croft, who's another strong female character with a really good head on her shoulders. Not a bad thing to see that out there again, especially after the success that Wonder Woman's had. I actually think that Tomb Raider, and I'm not saying that this movie will be as successful as Wonder Woman, so don't say, don't quote me on that. What I'm saying is, is that if there's a character that has potential 
to be a character that becomes very popular, it's Laura Croft. And let's face it, Alicia Vikander is a legit actress. And then you bring in somebody like Walton Goggins, who's going to be playing Matthias Vogel in the movie. As well, you I guess you could call him the villain in this sense, especially if you've seen the trailer. Another legit actor who is one of those guys that you kind of love to hate. So another good choice there. So we need to start realizing, if we don't already, that these movies aren't just for us. And yet there are going to be Easter eggs for us. And in a sense, you still want to make these kind of movies for the fans. You don't want to make these movies completely for the general public and alienate your major fan base. But at the same time, there's a give-and-take process there, especially if we want more of these movies. Maybe we don't want more video game movies. I mean, I understand the argument of, do we need these because of how good video games have become and how good the stories have been, especially in the Tomb Raider games? And I'll be the first to admit that the stories have been so good in the Tomb Raider games that maybe we don't need this. But at the same time, I'm not going to say no to this because I've always loved the Tomb Raider games. I love the Laura Croft character. I'm not going to say no to this, especially since if you see the trailer, it certainly doesn't look shot for shot like the game. Yes, there are elements there where you see some of the leaps and they're very, very similar. You see scenes on the boat. They're very, very similar. Okay, we're going to get some similarities here. And why wouldn't you? As successful and as good as the stories were on the games, they're not stupid. Like, the, the, the climbing action had to bring that in, right? All the stuff with the bow, you've got to bring that in. Even the look is ripped right from the game, basically. Wouldn't you want it to be in this instance, though? So, I mean, I think a lot of the criticism and complaints that I've seen about this trailer so far, I, I guess, are kind of justified. But in my mind, they're not because you, you want these things because if it didn't look that way you'd probably be upset about it. I know I would a little bit, so I'm glad that they're basing these movies off of these new games because the new games have been fantastic. And let's see what they do. Let's see how much deviation they have from the game. Is this going to be just another action-adventure movie, or are we going to get some of those elements that we saw in the game as well? And just like in the game, I mean, there's there's no sense that Lara's going to die in this movie, okay? We know that. We know they want to make multiple sequels for these movies I'm sure so but even in playing the game you knew that she wasn't going to die not you know a permanent death because obviously in video games you die every now and then you knew nothing was going to be permanent because you knew there were going to be more games coming but you still had that sense of urgency of okay this could be it you know what I mean there, there was still that sense of urgency there so we'll see how much they bring that into these movies. I'm just excited. I'm excited the Tomb Raider is finally back. Speaking of excited, though, how can you not be excited for Marvel's The Punisher that's going to be coming to Netflix? I mean, after how John Bernthal was oh so good in Daredevil. Now we're finally going to get The Punisher. We still don't know when, though. They've been teasing that release date, it seems like, forever. So Netflix really playing with our emotions there. Again, I won't go in-depth into this trailer. You've seen it already. You can see it on our Facebook page and on our Twitter accounts if you haven't seen it yet. But, man, does this look like the action-packed, just ass-kicking show that we wanted. I mean, it just we know that there's something that happened with his family was killed, and he's trying to figure out what happened to his family and everything that went down there. And it looks like there's gonna it's a vast conspiracy thing, and all the branches of the government want him dead to cover something up. And... You know, when I first saw that, I'm like, yeah, Frank, they want you dead because of uh, the havoc that you already wreaked. So, yeah, you're kind of almost public enemy number one in law enforcement's eyes. It doesn't really surprise me that they all kind of want you dead or they all want to bring you in. But I do like the fact that they're going to play that military aspect. We're going to see 
elements from Frank Castle's past, and I'm sure that's going to come into play in this series, and you kind of see that in the trailer and everything that's come out from this series so far, but it's just, it's got that edge to it, doesn't it? But it also has that emotion that we brought in with Frank Castle in Daredevil, where he's basically Johnny Cash, right, in the beginning of this trailer, and he's family man, and then it just gets ripped away from him that second, and then bullets start hitting the floor, right? But, and can I just say, and I've said this on the show before, the pace of the music in this trailer, I'm bopping my head, I'm enjoying the action, and I'm just getting pumped. It's like you're getting ready to rush out of the tunnel during a sporting event as a player. It's like, I am so pumped and ready for this. Just bring me this absolutely right now. So, fantastic job, cannot wait for this, and I think that they might drop more bullets in this show than Charlie Sheen dropped in Hot Shots Part 2. I know that that was a parody thing, but I seriously think there's going to be a lot of shell casings hitting the floor when The Punisher finally does come to Netflix. Here's something that does concern me, though, and it has to do with 20th Century Fox and the New Mutants. There was something that came out, and this is a story according to Variety, and it was Fox's Stacy Snyder who spoke to Variety about this and said that New Mutants is, quote, a haunted house movie with a bunch of hormonal teenagers. And I hear that and I go, oh, man, I I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or not. I'm going to paraphrase some of the other stuff that she said here. She said, when you look at films like Deadpool or Logan or the upcoming New Mutants, you'll see that they have their own personality. What I'm afraid of going forward with these movies. And I will continue when she says... The only solution is to put them in a breakfast club detention slash cuckoo's nest institutional setting. Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I know that the New Mutants shouldn't necessarily be, you know, a bunch of teenagers get together and save the world kind of thing. No, that's not what I'm saying that I want. I mean, you look at what Fox TV wants to do with The Gifted, and I know that that kind of looks a little bit more like Heroes We will dive more into The Gifted in future episodes. I don't want to put any spoilers out there. And I've certainly, I actually, as of right now, have not seen it myself. So I cannot tell you how close it is to something that we've already seen or not. But when I see that and I hear what they're talking about, and the exact thing I was worried about was because of the success of Deadpool and how that was just, it, it was the beat of its own drum, basically. It was exactly what Deadpool needed to be. And it was true to the comics. Logan. Absolutely what it needed to be. True to the comics. I don't see that that's the case from this description with the New Mutants. I think that there needs to be a little bit more of an edge here. And maybe they're saying because it's going to be like a haunted house movie, maybe they feel like that gives it the edge. And certainly we've seen absolutely nothing from New Mutants so far. So it's hard to gauge exactly what it's going to be like. But... (sighs) I just I'm worried they're going to deviate too much, and when I, when I see them say things like it, they're they're going to put them in a breakfast club detention slash cuckoo's nest into institutional setting, it kind of worries me. And they say, and there's also the well, they're coming into their powers and they're dangerous, and you know when they're dangerous together, that causes some problems. And we kind of saw that already a little bit in X Men movies, didn't we? But in a different way, and I think that they they did that very well in movies like First Class. And stuff like that when you were getting the young ones in there. I think that we've seen this done a little bit before, but I don't know that we need to make it like a breakfast club type setting. And we certainly don't need to make it a cuckoo's nest 
type setting. To me, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this does need to be different. Maybe this needs to break the mold of the typical superhero movie. But you know, a typical superhero movie can be done pretty, pretty well. And I've seen, I think we've seen examples of that even recently. So I'm just worried that they're going to deviate too far just for the sense of deviating and trying to be different. And then they're going to forget who they are and where they were supposed to be going with this. That's my only concern with New Mutants, but of course I'm going to give it a chance and I'm not going to worry about it too much until I see a trailer. One more thing that I wanted to talk about, and I think this kind of got lost in the shuffle of all the trailers and some of the stuff that came out this week, and that's Amazon signing Stranger Things writer-producer Justin Doble to a exclusive deal. Now, aside from the Duffer Brothers, according to this according to Deadline, this story, by the way, other than the Duffer Brothers, Doble was the one that was responsible for writing most of the episodes of Stranger Things. He's also worked on Fringe and The Path for Hulu and Into the Badlands. It looks like Amazon is really going all in on the sci-fi and comic book genre. I mean, you look, they've already got Robert Kirkman and Skybound signed to that first look deal and the content deal that they have with Kirkman. We're starting to see more sci-fi programming come up and comic book related programming come up on Amazon. It seems like they are all in and they're seeing a chance here to capitalize on something before Netflix even has a chance to corner that market. Stranger Things was incredibly successful, but it looks like Doble wants to step out, do his own thing, and create even more content on a competitive platform. And that's kind of what you see done every now and then, right? You see somebody who's been successful on one move over to the other and see what they can do on their own because apparently, you know, he was never going to get the spotlight with the Duffer Brothers there. And and it seems like there's talent there. I mean, those other shows he's worked on, I've been fans of all of them. So why not? Why not take your shot with Amazon and see what you can can create? And as far as Amazon goes, again, why not take the shot and try and corner this market before Netflix even gets a chance to, especially with Netflix looking like they're going to lose their Marvel content. I mean, if you're Netflix, where do you go from there in 2019? And now Amazon is already going to have the ground running before Am- before Netflix can even figure out what they're doing. So good move by Amazon, and I can't wait to see what they've got coming up. One final thing I want to talk about, big news coming out of Archie Comics this week, and that is that the chilling tales of Sabrina, that's right, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, is going to be coming to television from the CW in the 2018-2019 TV season. The press release that we got from Archie says that the new show, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, will be written by Archie Comics COO and Riverdale showrunner Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and directed by Lee Toland. Krieger and produced by Berlanti Productions as if Greg Berlanti doesn't have enough on his plate already. Although I will say we heard the rumors before that maybe Sabrina is going to be coming to Riverdale. And then from that, we just find out that she's getting her own show entirely. I actually think even though it seems like CW's programming lineup is getting pretty crowded, I think this is a brilliant move. I really, really do. It's going to be dark and edgy. That's what they're promising. It's going to be darker than Riverdale. We've already heard about that, if that's even possible. If you haven't read The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, by the way, this is not your Melissa Joan Hart, Sabrina. I mean, there there is some definite darkness and definite edge to these books. And they're really, really good. So as much as I kind of go, eh, when you're constantly adapting every little thing and every little character... This is a show, especially on the CW, this makes perfect sense. Just like Riverdale made perfect sense 
when they brought that onto the CW. This just makes sense, and the CW definitely has a history of when they get one show and it works out well, they have no problem going back to that well as often as they need to to create as much successful programming as they can. I mean, Arrow snowballed into The Flash and into Legends of Tomorrow and so on and so forth. And then you've got Vampire Diaries and Originals and Supernatural. All that stuff just kind of snowballed all together. So why not do this? And I don't, and you know, I have no idea as far as casting goes who you would get to play Sabrina in this case. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud, go ahead and comment here. Tell me who you think you would cast or tweet us at Down and Nerdy 757. It all really depends on what age they decide to go for for this. I think you want to try and trend younger if you can. Try and keep, you know, around 18 years old or something like that. I think that's where you want to go with this because that captures more of the chilling tales of Sabrina comic. And I think that would really be the way to go. So let me know who you think you would cast. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, it's time to go straight to hell. That's right, getting you ready for the Lucifer Season 3 premiere. Talking to the cast, producers, and showrunners next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Our Fall TV 2017 coverage continues this week and sitting down with the cast and producers of Lucifer on Fox. Got a chance to do that at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. Starting with Tricia Helfer, who was talking about, somebody asked a question about where her character stands heading into the season after everything that happened with Mom. So she tells us that. Mom is gone off creating. And, um, you know, who knows in the future, I don't know. But uh, but now I'm no longer the goddess of creation. I'm just a human, which is a little hit to my ego. But... Uh, <laughs> No, you know, I think there's there's a lot, and you know, in the panel, Joe was talking about identity, and each character is going to be going through a bit of an identity, uh, coming to terms with, you know, Dr. Linda with her own after she's almost been killed, you know, she almost lost her life, and um, Charlotte will definitely be going through one herself, but it's also coming from a place of not knowing anything. She's not going to know that that mom took over her body, but she's going to have a space of say it was three months of time that's just missing and what you know what happened to her husband I think her husband's probably going to have left her and taken the kids and um, and she's, she's going to have little bits of but you know I think throughout she'll start to have little bits of flashes of things that you know she, she will kind of remember a little bit or she'll have a she'll feel a familiarity maybe with Lucifer but she doesn't know why that type of thing so there's also lots of interesting angles that she can kind of be weaved into the story next to sit down with showrunner Joe Henderson and executive producer Ildi Mudrovich and the big news coming out of San Diego Comic Con 2017 was the addition of Tom Welling to the cast so they talked about that right off the bat so when I first came out to LA the you write, the, you write spec scripts you write scripts of shows to show that you can write Smallville was the first spec I ever wrote so I've been a longtime fan and uh, and I've also through that I knew what he could do you see all of the range of, 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 of acting chops he has so what we're excited I think the reason that we were able to get him is because this is a role very different from what he has played before and it lets us show that off yeah, you're, you're not going to see uh, uh, the mild-mannered uh, Clark, Clark Kent uh, at all. He's, he's fair. He's got, a, he's got a little edge. Yeah, got a little chip on that shoulder. 
And after I heard that answer, I had to ask Joe Henderson about that writer's room that we talked about with him on the show before and how they're able to transform characters like that. One of the great things is you guys are able to do that kind of thing. Because, and when Joe, when we had you on our show, even before the pilot aired, you talked about the writer's room and how you hired people from all different backgrounds. So maybe you can touch on that as well. Yeah. How are you able to transform these characters into something that just works so well, not just in the comedic sense, but in the dramatic sense too? I think a really big part of it was uh, approaching the characters from, like, it would have been really easy to make uh, Dan just Lucifer's nemesis. It's much more interesting to explore an unlikely friendship. It would have been really easy to make Chloe and Maze completely loggerheads. Much more interesting to stick them in the room together, have them live together, and find friendship. Um, con- conflicted friendship, difficult friendship, but a big part of it is taking these characters, uh, pushing them really hard, seeing if they break, but more importantly, seeing how they bend, seeing how they grow and learn, and that's, I think, from our histories, like how we dealt with adversity, how we dealt with issues. Like, a lot of times you end up becoming friends with the, the person you never expected, and that's something we yeah, want to play with. The show really is about duality and, and, and the, the dark, dark and light, and, and walking that fine line. So every single character, Maze is a good example of, okay, a demon, um, you know, and, and she could just be this kind of, I just want to kick people's asses and torture them, and that's all I want to do. We right. should do that, that's but actually she, good. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then when we, we found we, we put her with Linda yes. and, oh. and yes. this kind of magical, surprising, almost, I'm getting chills, uh, so it's like the sweetest, so sweetest relationship and the sweetest friendship and and I guess we do just try to explore um, stories that and, and relationships that we just experience. It doesn't, yeah, he's the devil, yeah, she's a demon, it doesn't matter that we just... And we have a cast that humanizes that and that's just really, really lucky. Next up, the lovely Amy Garcia sat down to talk about all things Ella, and she was talking about how the writers just wrote the character so fun, and she even dropped a little bit of information on something that's going to be coming up in a future episode this season. So they know, like, I love to dance, so there's an episode coming up where Ella and Lucifer go on a road trip. Yes! And yes. Ella may or may not be dressed as a Vegas showgirl. Oh. And they might not be like authentic headpieces from Vegas that are so heavy they had to be cargoed on a separate ship um, and, and a separate day. So, so um, I think it's honestly like a total collaborative effort. But they write so fun for her that I'm so glad that they write like you know they're like okay she can she has timing and but now I'm like oh man that was funny I gotta I gotta make it. But I think what's so fun is that she just like makes fun of herself. Um, like I ran into the wall the other day and they wrote she beetles out of the room and I like beetled out of the room and I ran into the wall and they're like we're keeping that so it's like they wrote it I committed and then they kept it you know what I mean one of my favorite people I got to talk to at San Diego Comic Con 2017 from the cast of Lucifer was Rachel Harris about Dr. Linda and one of the first things we talked about was that emotional moment where you actually think Dr. Linda is going to die on the show. I had the single tear and it was really, really sad, but at the same time, necessary. Yes. I know. I get emotional re-watching it back some because I love the relationship with Maze and uh, Amenadiel even, where they're, they have a connection and they're both close to Linda. And it's like, it's kind of great how everything's evolved and they're real people now. And we all kind of know how they operate in this world so from there rachel was asked what is dr linda's mindset headed into this season 
And how is that going to affect her going forward? Well, she's definitely so flipped out. You know, like if it, when, he, when Tom revealed himself in Monster, she didn't have a huge freak out moment or anything. She didn't like... I think she's much more... She internalizes things a little bit more. So... And when we come back into season three, she's, I think she's in denial about the enormity of what's happened to her and exactly how it happened. I mean, it's bad enough when you get, you're get you in a car accident, right? And you know everything that's involved in that. But then to have this weird, uh, you know, the, the mother of all creation try to kill you <laughs> to get information for you on her son and, like... It's such a mindfuck that um, I don't think she could totally process it, but I think she should. Th I think she thinks she should be able to process it just fine because she's a therapist and a psychiatrist. So she minimizes it and and doesn't quite cope with it until she is a bit forced to cope with it because we start to see a little bit more about her history um, and her scars are still visual, and so so. Um, she starts to crack a little bit, and she finds an, al an unlikely ally that uh, comes to her. So, so it's good. Did that answer your question? Yeah. I'm very curious. Let me tell you something. As somebody that was in the room during that press event at San Diego Comic-Con 2017, everybody from the cast of Lucifer and the producers, they had smiles on their faces, they're having fun, and they are so into this show like Rachel Harris so great talking to her about playing Dr. Linda there was just something in her eyes that made me love the character even more you see how much these actors and these producers love this show and love these characters and it shows each and every week that I've watched Lucifer since that season one premiere and I know that you're enjoying it as well hopefully you got some good info out of that that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the cast and crew of Lucifer, which you can watch every Monday night, new time, 8 o'clock Eastern on Fox. You want more information on us or on this week's show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. That's a website where you can find out all of that. Click on this week to find out more info about this week's show. You can also find us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter, and on Instagram as well. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. But remember, be good to your fellow nerds.